Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Yeah, so, you know, if you think we're doing a bad job, you can send us, send me an email and complain. And, you know, I won't write back to you while it maximizes profits to do it this way. Shrinking your own electorate to own the libs. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Vox's Ian Milheiser and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, Ian, uh, glad to have you back on the Weeds. How's it going? It's good to be here, although uh, sadly I bring depressing news about the world of voting rights today. Um, Well, so, okay, so after Democrats stole the 2020 election, a lot of (laughs) Republican state legislatures have been taking advantage of, uh, you know, the Constitution puts electoral administration largely in state hands, so they have the opportunity to try to prevent this kind of uh, fraud from happening in the future. And I gotta say, like, whenever I read these stories that are like 90 billion election restrictions are coming down the pike, it's like I always like I like process that headline. I, I see it with my my mind. Um, and then I figure, I don't know, there's going to be some lawsuits. I never read. I never read into the details. Like what what's actually going on? Yeah. So I think there's two interlocking stories here. One is, as you said, there's a lot of state legislatures and where we're seeing the most action is in Georgia and Arizona, which are the two states that recently flipped from red to blue and they're trying to flip them back. The other part of this story is that the Supreme Court has been chipping away at our voting rights laws really for a decade now. Just last week, they heard a case that potentially could be the death blow to the Voting Rights Act which would open the door to a lot of sort of racial voter discrimination um, by state legislatures. And so the reason I say these stories are interlocking is because what happens is the Supreme Court creates more space for state legislatures to make it harder to vote. The state legislatures move into that space and sometimes they get more aggressive than the Supreme Court has allowed them to go, which leads to a new lawsuit. And then when the Supreme Court says, oh, yeah, that thing that you did that previously went too far, we're now going to say it doesn't go too far anymore. More. So the cycle just keeps on repeating in that way. So but so what's 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 fresh in Georgia and Arizona? What's what's going to happen? So Georgia, the news is very fresh. The Senate passed a bill yesterday 
which contains a bunch of voting restrictions. The House passed a similar but not identical bill um, last week. And from what I understand, there are some real disagreements about some of the details of these bills. So there's going to have to be some negotiating there. Um, I can go through just a short list of some ideas that are on the table here. They want to restrict or eliminate Sunday voting. And a big reason why is because black churches do souls to the polls drives on Sundays. So it's a great opportunity to prevent black Democrats from doing that. There's proposals to strengthen voter ID. There's proposals to limit or eliminate the use of drop boxes where someone can just go and deposit their ballot when the elections office is closed. There's a ban on something called wine warming, which is just when volunteers pass out water and chairs and stuff to people who are waiting in line to make them more comfortable. And then the biggest thing, and this is the new thing, because in 2020, Democrats were much more likely to use mail-in ballots is that the House bill would make it harder to vote by mail and the Senate bill, I believe, would make it so that most people in Georgia just couldn't vote by mail at all. Only certain people would be be allowed to do so. So my question about this is, you know, it's not exactly as if Republican controlled state legislatures have been ignoring voting access, right? Like there were, you know, obviously like waves upon waves of lawsuits in 2020. I mean, good Lord. I remember back to election eve in 2004 and being in Ohio and genuinely not being clear what hours the polls would be open the next day because, you know, everybody was waiting on the federal lawsuit in those cases to come down. So it's not exactly as if, you know, this is totally new territory. So What's motivating? I mean, I I kind of get the vote by mail thing because obviously the pandemic made that a very distinctive form of voting in 2020 where it hadn't been previously. But kind of why else are, are these things that haven't previously been legislated against? Yeah. I mean, I think the semi-optimistic case for Democrats here is you're right that, I mean, Georgia has been controlled by Republicans for a long time. And like, if you have any knowledge of the history of Georgia and voting, it probably won't surprise you that they are an early adopter of voting restrictions. They were one of the first adopters of voter ID. Um, there's a big fight a while back about signature matching, whether your ballot could be thrown out because your signature looked differently than it did the last time you signed it. And so, like, the good news for Democrats is there's already a lot of voting restrictions in Georgia, and they still managed to win in 2020. The biggest new thing here is this vote-by-mail dispute. So what happened in 2020 is that Donald Trump, for reasons that don't really make any sense, decided to spend months and months campaigning against voting by mail and falsely claiming that there was that there was a lot of fraud and telling Republicans not to vote by mail. And so Democrats voted by mail in droves because they didn't want to get COVID-19 and Republicans listened to their leader and were much less likely to vote by mail. So now you have a lot of Republican state lawmakers, although not all. I mean, there, there are some Republicans who think this is a bad idea, but you have a lot of Republican state lawmakers who are saying, well, since more Democrats voted by mail last time around, if we make it harder to vote by mail, that's got to be great for us. But so, you know, one thing I'm I'm curious about as somebody who um, grew up in in New York and has spent most of my life in in the Northeast is like the there's like the Delta here, and then there's the level, right? And it's sort of long been my impression that voting access was like 
structurally, I, I shouldn't say access, um, but that, but that like the Sun Belt uh, had more flexible voting means, right? A lot more vote by mail, a lot more early voting. I was kind of shocked uh, the first time my, my in-laws in Texas told me about voting, where you could like drive to the town clerk's office two weeks before election day for no reason and be like, yeah, here's who I'm voting for. Uh, whereas in New York, it's like you have to register like signed in blood uh, while, you know, <laughs> like three years in advance. backwards into a <laughs> yeah. mirror, right? And so, and then, you know, we would talk a lot about voting rights, or I shouldn't even necessarily say voting rights, right? Like racial gerrymandering in yeah. Southern states, mm-hmm. right? Or sort of specific discriminatory practices. So are we are we talking about a situation in which if these laws go through, Georgia will become like the hardest place in America to vote? Or is it going from unusually easy to about average? Yeah, and it's a it's a good question. I mean, regionally, if you look at the United States, like the best place to vote is the West is the Western states. Mm-hmm. Like those are the states where you're most likely to have a law that automatically mails you a ballot. A lot of them use like the system that was d- designed in places like Colorado and Oregon that's just designed to make it as easy as possible to vote. So if you live out west, congratulations. Like those are the those have historically been the best states. The Northeast for Reasons that don't make a lot of I mean, that makes some sense to me, like because there isn't the same racial legacy there, there probably hasn't been the same political movements to make it easier to vote. Um, You have machine party machines that often benefit from having it be hard to vote. But like New York's laws are terrible and, and have been terrible for a really long time in the South. What you tend to see is that. Voting laws that make it easy to vote without really benefiting either party tend to go through. And historically, there's a wealth of literature. I mean, some of the white papers on this topic have titles like voting by mail does not benefit either party. I mean, the the literature is really (laughs) clear on this, that prior to 2020, voting by mail didn't benefit anyone. And so in the South, like I think lawmakers were like, well, you know, I want it to be easy for me to vote. And since this doesn't hurt my party, let's do it. What is new is, like I said, since 2020 was a different election, largely because of Trump railing against voting by mail, there's now many Republicans who are who think that voting by mail benefits Democrats. And so that's changed the politics in a region where partisan voting laws are still very common. So then maybe it, given the kind of regional differences, it might be helpful to turn our attention a little bit to Arizona, which like right. regionally has a very different legacy. So what's going on there? Yeah. I mean, Arizona, like their laws aren't as good as, say, Colorado or Oregon, but they do have anyone can um, can request a ballot. It's called no excuse absentee balloting, which is the rule in most states. You don't have to give an excuse in order to get an absentee ballot. They also have something called a permanent list where you can just sign up and say, from now on, I'm always going to vote by absentee, put me on the permanent list. And then every time there's an election, you're automatically sent a ballot in the mail. So it's not as good as Colorado, but it's close. I mean, and, and I'm hedging a bit here because the legislative process is further along in Georgia than it is in Arizona. So like, I don't want to say definitively what Arizona is going to do because there's just a bunch of bills that have been introduced. But it, it's similar to what you, you see in Georgia. I believe that there's a voter ID bill to put in place a strict voter ID law. There's a bill to get rid of the permanent list. There are
there are various attempts. I think there's something like a dozen different bills, and I'll confess that I haven't read all of them, that have some restriction on voting by mail. So I think what you're seeing in Arizona is an effort to make Arizona more like Georgia and potentially more like New York. When in the past, Arizona, like while it hasn't been, you know, like the good states like Colorado and Oregon, it has historically been more like Colorado or Oregon. And so, you know, one thing that that has been interesting to me watching this play out, right, is that sort of classic uh, voting ease politics, you know, when I think back to Kerry Bush in 2004, was the Democrats have this much more downscale uh, political coalition, right? A lot of black and Latino voters, um, some tendency of more educated people to be Democrats, but a marked tendency of poor people uh, to, to be yes. Democrats, you know, uh, with, with sort of controls along with, uh, you know, various other things, right? Which made it sort of plausible that arbitrary impediments to voting uh, helped Republicans. And there's an empirical literature about like on rainy days, um, Republicans would do better. There's also an empirical literature now questioning the use of the rain instrument. Uh, but but it was, it, the, the, the whole rain thing in this case was like theoretically plausible because what, what everybody thought basically was that Democrats were sort of um, more marginal, more likely to be shift workers, various kinds of things. And so just like easier to vote, a broader electorate will be more democratic. Um, the big political trends in the recent cycles have all sort of tended to cut against that, right? With like, I mean, if you look like, why did Democrats win in Georgia, right? Like, like why did Georgia flip? It was a big change in the political sentiments of educated suburbanites was like the biggest driver of change. And those feel to me like the the last people who are going to be deterred from voting by sort of mild uh, impediments, right? Like these are your, your high social capital. Right. Like it's also frankly a little bit difficult to imagine those people in practice being the ones targeted by voting restrictions, right? Like that's a politically you know, enfranchised group that even if they didn't vote for Republicans at the top of the ballot in the last election and have Republican state legislators, you know, their their complaints are going to be heard and the state elections commission is unlikely to put the pain points on them specifically. Yeah, no, these are all excellent points. I mean, so like what I my understanding of what the voting literature says is that economic security correlates with being a high propensity voter and also having strong community ties correlates with being a high propensity voter. And often that's just for logistical reasons. I've lived in the same place for several years, so I know where my precinct is. And if I'm someone who's still in the stage of life when I'm transient, I might forget to register. I might not know where to go to vote. And so it makes me less likely to vote. And you're right that the trend is that upper middle class white voters who are very high propensity voters are trending towards Democrats and low trust voters and low trust tends to correlate with you know less security are trending towards Republicans. So I think that a lot of tactics, you know, what Stacey Abrams has referred to as efforts to make not voting look like user error, where you just try to make it harder to vote without actually preventing people from voting. I'm not sure that those are going to benefit Republicans as much as they have in the past. 
the flip side of this, and here I want to go back to what I was saying earlier about the Supreme Court and the Voting Rights Act. Like the one trend that is still constant is that African-Americans overwhelmingly vote for Democrats. You know, Trump made slight gains amongst African-Americans in 2020, but not enormous gains. I mean, there's still over 80 percent of of black people vote for Democrats. And I think over 60 percent of Latinos vote for Democrats. And so as the Supreme Court starts dismantling safeguards against racial voter discrimination, it means that Republicans can use race as a proxy to identify where the Democratic communities are. And that's why I think that that's that's so worrisome. Right. Like after the election, right, like Trump's whole rhetoric about Pennsylvania was like, oh, there was all this voter fraud in Philadelphia. But then if you look at the trends, like Trump actually did better in Philadelphia and worse in every other county. So it doesn't make any sense. At the same time, like the level of the Democratic vote in Philadelphia is still really, really high. Right. So like if you can just like get fewer people in Philadelphia to vote, right, that helps Republicans, even though the Democratic gains aren't coming from there. Right. Right. Like it's 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 a big stock of Democratic voters um, in black rural communities right. in Georgia. Right. Like where, again, like Biden did worse in African-American rural areas in Georgia than Hillary Clinton did. But, like, he still got the majority of those votes. I mean, in both cases, like, the level versus the trend matters. Yeah. And, I mean, one thing I find interesting, at least the House version of the Georgia bill um, includes a provision that's intended to shorten lines at polls. Like, it's intended to make sure that precincts are distributed according to where people actually are. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the logic behind that is because the authors of the bill think that voting by mail is bad. And so if they're going to cut off voting by mail, they think making it easier to vote in person you know, uh-huh. would be good. But what's interesting about that is one of the prior rounds of voter suppression in places like Georgia and Arizona was that – Precincts were moved to white areas. Precincts were moved to areas where, you know, precincts in Democratic areas and particularly in black and brown areas were closed down. And so ironically, if what this bill does is shut down voting by mail, which may not actually benefit either party at all, while opening up more precincts in Atlanta, you know, you know, I, I don't think this is the intent of the drafters, but they could wind up making it easier for Democrats to win. That is very interesting because it does kind of cut against the like the theory that, you know, I was listening to kind of the like trajectory that Matt was laying out and saying that really, even though this isn't explicitly articulated and very few legislators would say that this is what they believe. Like that's a very robust theory of whose votes count, right? It's essentially like your response to losing highly politically enfranchised middle-class suburban voters is to punish the exact same people who you blame for losing the election when the composition of your electorate is different. That is an interesting thing to, to watch for in Georgia and does kind of speak to the disconnect between, Ian, what you're describing as a very clear empirical literature and the way that these things kind of get politically theorized, which is this very zero sum, if it helped our opponents in previous elections, it is going to hurt us, which like not only, you know, kind of short circuits a lot of debates around, you know, persuasion versus mobilization and assuming that the composition of the elect, the composition of each party's coalition is going to be identical from election to election, but also, does appear to run up right against the kind of frontier of voting rights litigation, because we've seen increasingly that the 
greater latitude that exists to discriminate based on partisanship, right. the easier it is to use as the instrument of that race, you know, yes. like for exactly the reasons that you've already described. And so that's kind of where the question of at what point is it considered impermissible to attempt to gerrymander for partisanship via gerrymandering for race come in. So maybe we should, you know, turn to what the case currently in front of the Supreme Court is and what we think that's likely to change in the election law landscape. Sure. And I mean, before I describe that case, I just want to briefly say that, like, one thing that I really struggle with is I don't know who the cynics are and who the suckers are amongst the people who are pushing these voting laws. And like what I mean by that is I assume there's some universe of people who are just cartoon villains and like actually sit down and say, we don't want black people to vote. How can we prevent black people from voting? And here's the bill we're going to pass. But I think there's a lot of Republican state lawmakers who actually believe that voter fraud is a big problem. And like empirically, there's no evidence for that. But I think that they are sincere. And if you sincerely believe that there was a crisis of voter by mail fraud, or if you sincerely believe that like black churches are busing in dead people to vote three times in Atlanta, then like I guess some of these laws make sense. And I mean, I I honestly don't know who the people are who are, you know, telling the lies and who the people are who are believing the lies. Um, But that said, let's talk about the Supreme Court. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So briefly, um, the Voting Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act is the law signed by Lyndon Johnson that basically ended the Jim Crow voter regime, where in many states it was nearly impossible for African-Americans to exercise political power. And so there's three basic prongs to the Voting Rights Act. The first is preclearance. In states with a history of racist election laws, they had to go to officials in Washington, D.C. and basically get permission every time they wanted to change their election law to make sure that they weren't doing anything racist. Um, The second prong is called the intent test. And that's just if a state legislature or a local legislature enacts a new voting policy with the intent of discriminating on the basis of race, it's struck down. And the third prong is called the results test. And I'll just read the, the statute here. It prohibits state laws or local laws that results in the denial or abridgment of the right of a citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color. So many laws that have a disparate impact on on voters of color are struck down under this results test. The problem is that in Shelby County, which was a 2013 decision, the Supreme Court basically got rid of preclearance. They they, they eliminated the formula which determined which states are subject to it. In a 2018 opinion called Abbott v. Perez, the Supreme Court imposed such a high burden of proof on plaintiffs alleging racist intent that it's virtually impossible to prove. I mean, you have to have a really egregious case to win it now. And then this third case, it's called Bernovich v. DNC. The plaintiffs want to basically do the same thing to the results test. Like the results test would still be on the books, but it would be so weak that it would be virtually meaningless. And if you don't have preclearance, you don't have the intent test and you don't have the results test, then you don't have a Voting Rights Act, which means you don't have any safeguards against racism in voting. As always, in the weeks between when the Supreme Court first agrees to hear a case and when the final decision comes out, there's like, a range of potential outcomes, and it's never 
totally clear, you know, even when it is clear on which side the justices are going to rule, which it often isn't, it's not at all clear whether what's going to happen is essentially a one-off decision or is going to totally reshape the landscape. Can you kind of walk us through the range of outcomes here and what you think to be most likely and, you know, with the caveat that this is always judicial tea leaf reading? Yeah. I mean, I emerged more optimistic for voting rights out of the oral argument than I was going into it. And that doesn't mean that I I think that the decision is going to be good for voting rights. I think it is going to be less horrific for voting rights than I than I thought when I read the briefs. So let me back up a second. There's two Arizona laws that are being challenged here. One law means that if you vote in the wrong precinct, your ballot is thrown out. Um, And like this is this is a pretty marginal incursion on voting rights. I mean, we're talking about a universe of a few thousand voters who are disenfranchised by this, you know, not tens of thousands or millions. So it's already kind of a weak. I mean, I don't want to say weak, but it, it is not the strongest voting rights case. And so the. Arizona GOP saw this and said, well, let's shoot for the moon here. And they argued in their brief that any law, basically any law that regulates the time, place and manner of voting is acceptable. And their lawyer got up and and Justice Kagan said, so you're saying that a state could require all voting to take place at a country club. And the lawyer realized he was in trouble and quickly backed away. So, like, they asked for too much. And the Arizona attorney general, Mark Burnovich, is is the other lawyer involved in this case. And his argument is essentially that states could take advantage of existing racial disparities, but they can't create them. So, like, if a state, for example, were to say in order to vote, you have to be a country music fan. You know, on the theory that more white people listen to country music, so this will prevent non-white people from voting. The state's argument is essentially, well, we didn't cause black people to not listen to country music. We didn't cause Latinos to not listen to country music. So it's not our fault that this law is discriminating against them. And I don't think that argument's going to fly either, because, like, again, that's that's just asking for too much. So, I mean, I I came out of the Supreme Court argument convinced that the Supreme Court or or as convinced as I could be that the Supreme Court is going to uphold the Arizona voter restrictions at issue in this case. I did not come out convinced that they're going to go as far as the as these parties want them to go because these parties just ask for way too much here. And so it might be two or three other cases before the results test is fully dismantled. But, you know, for reasons I can get into in a bit, I think it's very likely. I mean, well, I'll, I'll just tease the reason. John Roberts, when he was in the Justice Department in 1982, was the point person trying to get Reagan to veto the bill that created the results test. And he's the most moderate member of the Republican majority on the Supreme Court. So I'm pretty confident the results test is in trouble. I don't necessarily think that this is going to be the case that gets rid of it entirely. Let's take a break. And I want to I want a devil's advocate a little about this. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. 
Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So something that always strikes me when we see these things is that for historical reasons, there is state administration of elections in the United States. Then for another set of historical reasons, there is like federal preemption of that state administration in cases of racial discrimination, right? And at the time that the Voting Rights Act was established, racial discrimination in voting was like genuinely racial discrimination in voting. Right. Like the purpose of it was to make it so that black people could not exert political power, not just to influence general elections. Right. But that like if you were a southern politician somewhere who thought they could gain some momentary advantage by mobilizing black voters on your behalf, you would face overwhelming backlash from the white community, which was like really, really committed to upholding segregation and white supremacy and Jim Crow. Conservatives would not have looked at Tim Scott and been like, well, fair enough, you know, like he agrees with us on the main issues, right? And it it just seems to me that like that is legitimately not what is happening in these voting access controversies. Like Republicans are trying to win elections. And they, like many people who engage in marketing or electioneering or various things, have noticed that racial identity correlates with vote choice and that, like, you might do things to manipulate that fact. But, like, both parties, like, genuinely welcome, like, electoral support from people of all races if they, in fact, support them, right? Like, there are non-white members of both parties, things like that. And so I don't think that it is good when people aren't able to vote or when partisans manipulate voting rules for advantage. But like legally speaking, the Voting Rights Act is about 
a subject that is different from the current contestation of of politics and like i can i can see it john roberts's way i i think i mean before ian jumps in with like things that he actually knows um the, <laughs> the like the two things that strike me hearing you talk that through matt are one if the reason that African-Americans vote overwhelmingly Democratic is because of a partisan realignment that started with the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, then it is a little bit circular to say that, that Republicans acting on that fact is somehow divorced from the history of racial discrimination that caused the Voting Rights Act to be necessary to begin with. The other thing is what you were talking about in the first segment, which is that even in uh, even after an election where you know, on the first derivative, especially like black and brown men were more likely to vote for Republicans at the top of the ticket than they had been in previous elections. The response from Republican state legislatures is to target lower income black and brown communities and voting rights. So it does kind of undermine the argument that yes, there is genuine contestation for votes all across the spectrum. There's also the phenomenon of, you know, attempting to suppress votes from the other side, which is a form of contestation, but kind of an ethic, you know, not necessarily the kind you want in a super healthy democracy. But it is also the case that there aren't exceptions being made for it's not exactly like anyone's trying to write a law that says that that tries to carve out the blocks of non-white voters who are most likely to move into the Republican coalition in the future. But let, let me put it another way, though. Like, when I hear a story about an effort to make it hard for college students to vote, I don't think to myself, oh, well, that's fine because it's not racist, right? Like, it's just like it, that also seems bad, right? Like, it is motivated by the same desire as rules that try to make it hard for African-Americans to vote, which is like Republicans want to win the election. And it's bad for the same reason, which is that like it should be easy to vote as like a matter of principle. And the fact that like one, like it's a real fact, right? Like an attorney's job is to try to win the case for his client. So like obviously like you grab on to the statutes and constitutional provisions that exist. And like there is no like 15th Amendment for college students. Uh, but like, just like between the three of us and hundreds of thousands of people in the audience, <laughs> like it just, it seems like, like the actual issue here is partisan politics and like a general question about shouldn't we all live in sort of Oregon postal voting paradise and like not really a racial question. So I agree that like the difference between what's happening now and what happened in, say, the 1950s Mm -hmm. in the in the 1950s, you had southern lawmakers who had an ideological commitment to white supremacy. You you know, like like their belief was that white people should rule, black people should be excluded from power. And so we're going to design an electoral regime that ensures that outcome. And now you have Republicans whose ideological commitment is that Republicans should rule and Democrats should be excluded from power. And, you know, they're happy to have Tim Scott or Clarence Thomas or, you know, uh, someone who anyone who agrees with them vote for a Republican. But they use race as a proxy to identify where the Democrats are. Now, that said, I mean, the nice thing about being a lawyer is like I don't necessarily have to have these philosophical conversations. I could just 
just look at what the law says. And like what happened in 1982 with that amendment to the Voting Rights Act that I mentioned is the Supreme Court said in 1980, basically, yeah, we agree that the only thing the Voting Rights Act should do is prevent racist intent. That was a case called uh, City of Mobile v. Uh, v. Bolden. They said that in order to win a case under the Voting Rights Act, you had to show that the law was enacted with racist intent. And even in the 1980s, voting rights advocates realized, wait a second, that's that's not how this works. And that's not always how this works anymore. And so they wrote this results test, which says that any law that results in a bad outcome for minority voters, even if there wasn't racist intent, is potentially vulnerable to the Voting Rights Act. There was a huge debate over it. You know, John Roberts was the guy arguing, no, the only thing that should matter is racist intent. And President Reagan, to his credit, disagreed with him. So, like, I agree that, like, the sort of tactics that have that are being used now are motivated by different different reasons than in the 1950s. But like Congress already had this debate and they passed a law saying that even if the law isn't motivated by racist intent, that we still we still don't want it to, to go through. So I guess that that kind of brings us to the dormant legislative branch and all this. Right. Because the fact of the matter is that in the years since. Shelby County, there have been plenty of efforts to, you know, to respond. And and this is when the Supreme Court make like issues decisions like this, there will always be a passage in the majority decision saying something like, if Congress thinks that this thing we just struck down is in fact something the federal government ought to do, then Congress needs to write a new law that allows for this because the way they've the way that they've had it on the books since 1965 is not okay anymore. So there definitely is an argument that could be made that congressional inaction to date is its own form of action and that, you know, the expressed desire of the Congress is that this should continue to be a court battle, which means that the Voting Rights Act should kind of be eroded away by the litigative process and there's no need to kind of shore it up. But what we're seeing this year is an effort from Democrats who obviously like have been proposing plenty of bills to not only reauthorize, but kind of rethink the Voting Rights Act. We're seeing an effort this year to actually put that pretty high on the legislative docket, making it possible that, you know, with unified democratic control of the government, it could actually pass. So can you talk us through what Democrats have in mind to kind of address all of this? Yeah, I mean, this is a big priority for Democratic leadership. Like, like in every new house, the first 10. So every bill has a number and the first 10 bills, H.R. 1, H.R. 2, H.R. 3, H.R. 4, are reserved for the leadership's top priorities. And the big voting rights bill that just passed the house is H.R. 1. So like that's Nancy Pelosi signaling this is the thing that we care most about. And then there's a companion bill that's H.R. 4, which has a lot of fixes to the Voting Rights Act. So this is something Democrats care a lot about. It just passed the House. Um, and I mean, what's interesting about this bill is it combines, I mean, a lot of the litigators and like the voting rights experts who have been fighting these cases were very involved in drafting this bill and, you know, went through and said, OK, like, here's this thing that this court did that we didn't like. So we're going to reverse that. You know, it, it targets a lot of things that Democrats haven't liked for a long time like voter ID. Um, it provides for automatic for same day registration, eliminates strict voter ID laws, forbids certain kind of voting purges. 
H.R. 4 would bring back preclearance. It would make it easier for states to be bailed in, meaning that states that historically have not been subject to preclearance could potentially be subject to it. States like Wisconsin. And then, you know, it requires early voting. And then probably the biggest thing is that it requires independent commissions in order to draw legislative districts in an effort to get to get rid of gerrymandering. So Democrats really want this to happen with two possible exceptions. The, the, the issue is that there's no way this is getting through the Senate as so long as the filibuster can block it, because Republicans like what the Supreme Court's been doing to voting rights. It benefits them. You know, they, they like these laws that state legislatures have been passing. It benefits them. They like gerrymandering. And so the question is whether Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema, who appear to be the holdouts on maintaining the filibuster, are willing to say, and, you know, they don't necessarily have to eliminate the filibuster. You know, there's lots of ways that they could create a carve out or that they can make it harder to filibuster without eliminating it altogether. Joe Manchin recently signaled he's open to that. The question is whether they care enough about pulling our democracy out of this downward spiral that they are willing to find some way around the filibuster so that this can pass the Senate with only Democratic votes. You know, you kind of talked us through the major provisions of the bill, but maybe it might be helpful to kind of bring those a little bit more explicitly in dialogue with voter restriction efforts we were talking about. Like, to what extent is this actually going to prevent or preempt what states like Arizona and Georgia are doing? And to what extent can it actually, is it actually going to be able to redirect the Supreme Court's drive to get rid of voting rights protections as we understand them now? Yeah, I mean, I I hesitate to predict that they're going to stop everything because like state legislatures can be reactive too. And if President Biden signs H.R. 1 tomorrow, then like the Georgia legislature can read it and figure out what they're still allowed to do. And then they'll just do that. So like this will not be the end of like voter restrictions in the United States if these two bills pass. But H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 combined are the most ambitious pro-democracy legislation that has ever been gotten this far in American history. I mean, they they really are extraordinary bills. And the reason why I think they are so potent is because they combine the knowledge. I mean, I I know a lot of the voting rights lawyers and a lot of the experts who are involved in putting together this bill. And like how this came about is that the voting rights community got together and said, let's draft our dream bill. Let's draft our consensus for how we can make it as easy to vote as possible. And they did so aware of the tactics that state legislatures have been using. I mean, like I said that vote by mail, is you know, the attacks on vote by mail are new, but they aren't that new. And there's language in H.R. 1 that would require no excuse absentee voting. So like they're on that. And so, you know, the, the story here is that you have people who are, you know, conservatives on democracy who have, you know, spent the last decade or so innovating on what sort of voting restrictions they like. And the voting rights community has paid attention to what they're doing. They've come up with countermeasures. They've put those countermeasures in a bill. They've combined them with things like independent redistricting commissions that, you know, I I think have broad support when you, you know, when you ask people who are not sitting lawmakers how they would like districts to be drawn. And, And they have responded to what's going on. 
if this bill passes, I'm sure that conservatives will spend the next 10 years innovating. And 10 years from now, there might have to be a new bill. But this is, you know, it's a really smart, it's a well-drafted, it's a very comprehensive, um, you know, the, both of them, HR1 and HR4, these two pieces of legislation. I, I've talked to um, some people who are not voting rights people. They are like election, electioneering people, right? Yeah. They, 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 they try to help Democrats win. And their view is that the overwhelming preponderance of like the actual value of HR1 is in the redistricting yeah. provisions, right? And like not actually in the the sort of voting access kinds of things. Uh, because, you know, because districting just has such a like large, yeah. like mechanical impact on political outcomes. Whereas, you know, the, the ballot access stuff, you know, it matters at the margin, right? But like doesn't swing huge groups of people in the same kind of way. And, but I wonder, like, do, do you have pushback on that? Like, I, I you know, I, I talked to one group of people um, and they and they just like have been a little poo-pooey about the, the stuff that we've been talking about relative to other provisions of H.R. 1. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I was told by uh, Charles Stewart, I believe is his name at, at MIT, who's who's an expert on election procedures, is that Parties are normally very good at adapting their campaign tactics to whatever the rules are. So like, you know, in 2020, when there was a lot of concern that people wouldn't turn out because of the pandemic, you know, Michelle Obama gave a speech where she said, if you can vote early in person, do it. If you can't vote by mail, if you want to vote by mail, request your ballot as early as possible. Like when it looked like Louis DeJoy, the postmaster general, was delaying the mail, like Democrats blitzed the media with like warnings that like you really need to get your thing in early. And if you can vote early in person, do that. So like it is true that like parties are good at compensating. You can't really compensate against gerrymandering, but they're good at compensating against bad election procedures. You know, that said, it reduces resources. Uh, Like, you know, if the Democrats have to spend a lot of money educating people on early voting, then they can't spend that on whatever else they would spend it on. And the other thing is, like, let's do something weird and step back out of partisanship here. Like, we just want people to vote like, like you know, we, we, we want everyone to have it, have a say in, in who they are governed by. And there's already white papers coming out that suggest that voting by mail, even after 2020, doesn't really benefit either party. And in fact, all that happened in 2020 is Republicans still turned out. They just turned out in person. But we still want to make it easy for people to vote. If there's a pandemic, we don't want them to have to go and risk getting infected to go to the polls. And I think that even if neither party benefits, you know, if what you see is that the Democrats keep winning, but, you know, the upper middle class white suburban segment of the Democratic Party represents a larger percentage than the low income segment of the party because of these voter restrictions, then even though these lawmakers are going to have a D by their name, you you know, that's going to change the kind of person who wins Democratic primaries. It's going to change the incentives for sitting Democratic lawmakers, and they're going to govern differently. And, you know, I want low-income voters who don't have flexibility with their job schedules and may find it difficult to show up at the polls between 
eight and seven on a particular day to still have the opportunity to vote, even if that doesn't change the outcome of, you know, whether the people who get elected have a D or an R by their name. I do want to talk about the kind of uh, electoral effects of redistricting commissions, though, because on the one hand, Ian, you know, you kind of talk about that as this good government, you know, voters on both sides. It's very easy to make the case that like, oh, politicians are just making the rules to protect themselves. And we should have rules that like, aren't set by politicians. That seems like a very good nonpartisan, you know, like, like a solidly nonpartisan message. But then Matt saying that in the world of professional trying to get Democrats elected errs, redistricting commissions are seen as a huge you know, are seen as something that's much more likely to tilt elections toward Democrats than all this voter access stuff. And I do wonder if how, how those two things interact, right? Because yeah. it's not as if over the kind of strong partisanship weak parties era, we haven't seen plenty of evidence that you can move the needle on public opinion questions by saying this is going to hurt your enemies. Right. Uh, and, and negative partisanship is like obviously like the other factor going in here. So you can definitely logically see a world where redistricting commissions get much more weaponized in a partisan sense than they are right now and become as a result much more controversial do you like how do you see all of that playing out and what does it mean for voting rights more generally if you have not just kind of the institutional incumbency of a party trying to restrict any voting expansions that will hurt them and same on the other side but that party's partisans believing that not only is it okay if other people don't vote, it's also okay if on the margin their votes are diluted because it means that their preferred team wins. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely the manner in which the members of the commission are selected matters a great deal because both parties are going to capture that commission and, and use it to push their gerrymandered maps through if, if, if they can. And so you want to have, I mean, like what some states will do is they might have like five Democratic members, five Republican members, and then the 10 partisan members have to agree upon five more people who will be honest brokers. Like you, you need to have some sort of way to prevent the commission from being captured. That said, I mean, I think the biggest problem that Democrats right now have right now in the redistricting space is that they have a tendency to unilaterally disarm. So like California has a nonpartisan redistricting commission. Texas does not. You know, I live in Virginia, which for many years was a red state. It like has been trending blue for a long time. And now finally we have a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic governor. And what's the first thing that happens? Nonpartisan redistricting commission. So like, you know, I think nonpartisan redistricting commissions are a really good idea. I don't think that what we want is to have them in blue states while red states can do whatever they want. And so one of the biggest virtues of H.R. 1 mandating them throughout the country is that it eliminates that skew. It means that every state will have the same rules. So you don't have a situation where I mean, like the Virginia Commission passed by ballot initiative. I think the California initiative passed by ballot initiative. So like you don't have a situation where like Democrats out of a sense that like they don't like gerrymandering are taking away their own ability to counter Republican gerrymandering. Okay, I think we we, we should wrap this up and, and move on. Yeah, we have this white paper with a lot of stuff. We got a good yeah. one. We got a good one. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? 
Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. There are a million bad ways to start your morning off. The no coffee traffic jam, the soggy morning jog, the why is the dog taking so long just go already walk. But you can unleash your ideal day with a perfect shower using Method hair care products. Designed with high quality ingredients, Method's new range of shampoos and conditioners will give your hair undeniable softness and shine. And hey, if you're a night shower kind of person, that's great too. Try pure peace infused with peony, rose water, and quinoa protein. Or Simply Nourish, crafted with coconut, rice milk, and shea butter. Or Daily Zen, made with cucumber, seaweed, and green tea. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Shop methodproducts.com. Okay, we have today, does private equity investment in healthcare benefit patients, question mark, evidence from nursing homes by Atul Gupta, Sabrina Howell, Constantine Yanellis, and Abhinav Gupta? Uh, short answer is it does not. It does not benefit the patients. Um, they, you know, so they're looking at pr- private equity companies, like in case you don't know, these are sort of investment funds. And what they do is they try to buy companies that they believe are not being structured for sort of optimal shareholder value. And then they, they rejigger them, right? Um, it, it, there's a lot of different things private equity companies do. Uh, but Utopianly, you would say that rearranging economic uh, entities to sort of maximize shareholder value is creating a more efficient economy uh, throughout the entire space. Um, what they are showing in the particular case of nursing homes is that the way you optimize appears to be by making cost-cutting decisions that uh, lead Medicare patients to die uh, significantly more rapidly, you know, which raises a lot of questions, uh, both about the particular, you know, regulatory framework in this sector, but also about the sort of overall benefits of having a lot of smart and wealthy people spending their time trying to find sectors of the economy that are ripe for this kind of takeover and and disruption, uh, because there's no dispute here that it it works, right? Like they are rearranging the business model and capital structure of these companies to more. Uh, reflect shareholder value in accordance with uh, Milton Friedman's dictums about how the private sector should be organized and and things like that. It turns out that a lot of nursing home operators appear to be wasting the shareholders' money on keeping patients alive when you can uh, 
behave in a different way and make more money. Because you could say, right, oh, well, you know, if you make the nursing home worse, like you'll lose customers and like really you should you should just treat people well and keep them alive. Uh, but they're showing that like that's not true, that like really smart analysts have found out that there are exploitable margins here in which the cost savings uh, far outweigh um, the, the, the customer losses. And it's just that it's uh, really bad for the health of people entrusted to their care. And, you know, it's it's pretty chilling. I'll confess I had kind of a panicked reaction to this paper because it spends a whole lot of time discussing how like nursing home consumers, I mean, patients and like the family of patients just don't know which nursing homes are good and don't know how to pick one that's like not going to be taken over by some private equity company that's going to kill their mother. And like... I have no idea how to pick a nursing home. And I mean, it makes sense. Like, I mean, if I'm going to go out to eat, like the market does a really good job of teaching me how to pick a restaurant. I've eaten at a lot of restaurants. I have friends I can ask for recommendations. There are websites that review restaurants. Like I I've just I've I've really got the skill of picking a restaurant down because the market teaches me that. But like I've never thought about picking a nursing home. I've never had to do it before. It, you know, it's something that if you ever have to do, it's in the midst of a emotional tragedy where you're so overwhelmed by the enormity of what you're doing. And and furthermore, like you only ever have to do it once. Exactly. For the overwhelming majority of people, you know, unless you have such a terrible experience that you have to pull your parent out again, you're only going to be selecting like one place for in cases where your parent, where parents are, are still living together, both parents to live, it's not like people are doing. You know, you're not doing concierge work for your entire extended family. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Like, I mean, it's it's. I mean, this is a problem. Like, health economics is a whole field about how consumers are very bad at making healthcare choices because they don't have to do them very much. They don't have very good information. But like, the one thing that really struck me is there's this line in this paper about how. Even though the government has a five-star rating system, consumers aren't responsive to that. And so that suggests to me that either there has to be something – more has to be done to communicate to consumers which nursing homes are good. You know, like if, if you buy a car, cars also have a five-star rating system and the rating is on the sticker. Because they know that everyone buying a car is going to look at the sticker. And if they see it's only got two stars, they're probably not going to buy that car. Um, So either you've got to do something like that or you've just got to have more direct regulation where like Medicare steps in and says, no, you have to have this much nursing time. You have to turn your patients over this often and so on and so forth. I I endorse both of those things. But like I just I mean, this is this is a big take. But like I fundamentally think that like the rise of this kind of shareholder capitalism value system has like undermined American society in a kind of profound way that like part of what you see with this nursing home thing is you just like you cannot have a world in which the government has micro-regulated everything down to the point where totally ruthless pursuit of profit aligns with social objectives. Like the regulators are never going to be that good, right? You need at some level to like cultivate 
a uh, ethic of virtue among <laughs> people. No, you know what I mean? Like if you, so like we are journalists, right? If you made up a story and slipped it past your editors and it went mega viral, that might happen, right? Like there have been journalistic frauds, but you would be really, really, really guilty, ashamed. You would not tell your friends at the bar. If your boss found out, you would get fired. People would not keep it as like a cool little secret among themselves that like they had this thing going, right? Because like for all our flaws in the media, like we do still have like some sense of professional ethics, right? And you need that in journalism and you need it in medicine. Right. Like if medical doctors and it to an extent, I think it does happen. But like to the extent that medical doctors appropriate the ethics of like high frequency stock traders, where the goal is just to cleverly identify market inefficiencies and exploit them for profit, like people will die. Like if your doctor wants to trick you into getting inappropriate treatments, like he could probably do that. Like they they are medical experts, right? And like, it's not going to work. And it's the same thing for nursing homes, right? Like unless the nursing homes are run by people who like, yes, like they're, they're trying to make a living as everybody is, but like, unless they are trying to like take pride in a job well done, right? Meaning by providing good care to their patients, like there's no, I, I think it's like totally utopian both like on the right to think that like we're going to have like a market solution for this where, you know, people assess the quality of the care or on the left to think that like a like impersonal national bureaucratic process is going to make all of the nursing homes good. It's like the people running them have to give a damn. That's why private equity in particular makes so much of a difference here. Because, like, the purpose of the private equity sector is to not give a damn. Right. I, I kind of want to talk a little bit more because I think that the the operating assumption when you hear about case of, of like, oh, privatization leads to cost cutting, the operating assumption is, oh, right, you're, you have to reduce costs so that you can generate more profits. And that's not what's going on here. They, you know, they're finding that, you know, it, it's not that income is greater because they're cutting costs. What they've found in this paper is that the kinds of transaction costs that get added to a target company's ledger when they're bought out by private equity increase. So for example, like the PE firm bought the nursing home chain using debt financed instruments, unsurprisingly, interest payments, you know, <laughs> go up by 300%. Real estate costs go up because something that private equity firms often do is, you know, buy a company, sell off all the real estate the company owns to a real estate company, and then rent back that real estate so that they have this, you know, big, profit this big cash infusion on the books early in their ownership of the company. And then the fact that ultimately the rental payments will exceed the revenue that you got in the initial sale is past their time horizon. They'll already have sold off the company by then. So that's not their problem. Those kind of tinkerings are what's happening on the other side of the ledger as not just costs in general, but like frontline costs get really reduced. The finding in this paper is that, you know, frontline nurses, frontline nurse hours get reduced by 3% when nursing homes are bought by private equity firms, whereas overall staffing reductions are just 1.4%. Like that's, that means that you're, that you're reducing the most important employees as far as patient care is concerned by like twice as much as you're reducing the, the workforce as a whole. But I will say this for the role that 
uh, standards of care and like government accreditation plays in this paper is it provides a super useful instrument for econometric researchers. Like it's useful to have, oh, we know that frontline nurse hours are important because the government uses them in raiding nursing homes to say, okay, this is something that is being reduced. Therefore, we can infer that patient care is not is being hurt. Another standard that's used in government five star ratings is use of antipsychotic drugs, since those are known to have you know high mortality rates in elderly patients who don't have high medical burdens. And lo and behold, they find that use of antipsychotic drugs is super is much higher when nursing homes get bought by private equity, presumably because it's an easy way to deal with patients that doesn't require high touch high you know high presence nurse care so it's good when government is is able to provide researchers with that kind of data it's at least you know if you think of the market as an organization of information as well as an organization of profits which is in theory the way that economists you know and free marketers want the world to happen this is like good for information it's good for future consumer choice which brings me to the way they're measuring what is bad for patients in this paper which is not just mortality uh which obviously like they put, they are very thorough in explaining that you know mortality is unequivocally bad and it's very easy <laughs> to measure so it's our instrument here um but mortality not just in the nursing home but in the nursing home plus the 90 days after release and the reason that i bring that up is because logically in the context of private equity you would very you can very easily consider a world where like they want to offload patients who are about to die those patients are would cost them a bunch more money they don't want to have the death on the books but it's relevant of course because not only have not only are nursing home deaths a big covid-19 problem generally but specifically recently we've We've gotten a lot of information about the use, about the manipulation of nursing home death statistics in New York under Andrew, Andrew Cuomo, specifically so that people who had been discharged from nursing homes to hospitals weren't being counted in death in nursing homes reports. And that happened after an order that nursing homes couldn't reject people who were being discharged from the hospital with COVID-19, which kind of created this cycle where if you had COVID-19 from a nurse, like if you went from a nursing home to a hospital, and you died, you didn't count. But if you came back, then everyone you infected, if they went to the hospital, didn't count. And it's just, it's extremely, I mean, frustrating as like, as a journalist, as someone who cares in transparency, and as someone who, you know, cares a lot about being able to measure the accuracy of your data, the more we realize both how highly correlated with COVID-19 deaths nursing homes were, and as we kind of get the information from stuff like this paper about what makes nursing homes particularly good or bad for patients, the absence of having had good real-time data coming out of, you know, the first state to get hit really, really hard by the pandemic on this thing that since has been learned to be a really big disease vector, like, it's really hard to look at that in retrospect and say, people not only in New York, but a lot of other states could have died because we didn't know just how bad nursing homes were for the pandemic in those first several months. So, so I want to briefly go back to Matt's point about like cultivating an ethic of virtue, I guess. So like I, I'm a member of the Virginia Bar and like one of, the, I guess, the privileges I get for that is I get a publication that just tells me 
everyone who was disciplined by the bar since the last time I got that publication and like briefly why they were disciplined and if they were disbarred, what sanction they got. And like that sort of serves two purposes. One, it's it's like the professional equivalent of being put in the pillory and having people throw tomatoes at you. So like other lawyers are deterred from being bad lawyers. But it also means that if one of my friends comes to me and says, hey, I need a trust and estates lawyer. And I notice that the guy that I've been recommending has shown up in that list, then I don't recommend them anymore. And I wonder if like a similar mechanism could be used here, because if I had to pick a nursing home for someone, the first thing I would do is ask a doctor, probably their doctor or my doctor, like which nursing home I should pick. And if there's a way to cultivate good knowledge amongst physicians about which nursing homes are good and which which nursing homes are not, then I, I suspect that that could do a lot to help shunt people towards the better nursing homes. But the but the other thing, right, about about the the, the bar associations disciplinary procedures, right, is that lawyers have um, this guild type organization. Right. Which introduces some economic inefficiencies into the process. Right. And David Brooks uh, had a recent column where he was talking about sort of protectionist labor market rules in, in various cases. And he sort of mentions offhandedly, right, the fact that generally a law firm has to be owned by lawyers. Right. And that's why there's partners. Right. And you don't go you don't go to Lawyer Inc. Um, and you don't have a private equity buyout of a law firm. Right. And there like there are real costs to that organization of the legal profession versus um, the kind of rationalization that private equity has brought into medicine. But part of what you're seeing, right, is that that rationalization undermines the concept of professional ethics as something separate from marketing. The private equity people, they aren't doctors. Right. Like that's the whole point. Right. And like what the private equity industry does, like it's its purpose is to find, say, say the managers of a town uh, of a company, they feel sentimental about Toledo. So they don't close the factory in Toledo and move it to, you know, uh, Vietnam. Right. And private equity says, wait a minute, if we buy this company, we can tell the managers they have to stop being sentimental about Toledo or we can fire them. Right. And we can say, no, like we have to optimize the organization of this. And there there are benefits to that. Right. Like reorganizing all the capital in your country to be more efficient has some upsides, but it can hurt specific communities. And I think especially in industries we have so much asymmetrical information between the customer and the provider. It's really it's really toxic, you know, to just say, like, this is how it's going to go. I, obviously, like, it sounds weird to to say nice things about lawyers. Um, but like we're all but like, terrible. But, but like there is a point to all of that. <laughs> right. Like there's a point to like having a bar association and to those like weird TV scenes where it's like as an officer of the court. You know, right? Like the the lawyer is not supposed to just like anything to make a quick buck, right? And like the private equity limited partner, like that's what that's the promise of private equity, right? Is that if killing three million people will make you six dollars, you go do it. <laughs> 
right? Like that's that's what you're that's the professional ethics of private equity. And it's like it's genuinely uh, bad. That's where I am. We shouldn't kill people for profit. No one should die. Yeah, I'm anti-death as a rule. <laughs> well, look, no, I mean, people are going to die. Um, but like, I, I mean, I, I think it's a serious, th- there are regulatory aspects to it. But like, I, I think we need to like rebuild some sense in our society that like the pursuit of life, I, you know, that I mean, these are commercial relationships. Like you pay your attorney, you pay your doctor. Um, we make money selling ads on this podcast. But like the weeds value proposition is like something other than the maximization of, of profit. Like we have editorial values that we try to uphold. And like you need nursing homes to have that, too. That sounds correct. <laughs> I all right. So, so ending ending know. on a super super hot take, Matt. <laughs> so thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to Ian for joining us. Thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.